listeners. This is Emily Ann from Democrats for Education Reform, and you're listening to Ed Chats from Defer's media team. From its inception, our nation's public education system has been rooted in inequity, spanning lines of race, gender, gender identity, class, sexual orientation, native language, zip code, and disability. In efforts to change the status quo, education thought leaders and political minds are revolutionizing the education space. Every month, we sit down with a few of these leaders and discuss what's being done right now to advance a high-quality, equitable education system for every student. Legacy preference and binding early decision are inequitable college admissions practices still plaguing the higher education system. On today's episode, we sit down with New York State Senator Andrew Grunardis to discuss a New York legacy preference and early decision bill that he and fellow colleagues are currently sponsoring. And a Columbia student activist, Jalen Adams, currently fighting alongside Our Turn, a youth-led movement to reform our nation's education system. Thank you so much for giving us some time to talk to us today. We really wanted to talk about the legacy bill that you're sponsoring in New York right now. I know that that's a pretty heated topic kind of just around the U.S. right now, but specifically in New York, I wanted to start by giving our listeners some context um, of legacy preference, kind of the history in New York, Mm -hmm. if you can kind of define for us what legacy preference is. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, legacy preference is, you know, basically what it sounds like. It is you know, through the college admissions process. It is this idea that uh, applicants who have a legacy connection, which often means a family connection, to a college or university, get a preference in their own admissions application to that same school. So, the most simple example is. You know, your mother or father went to XYZ college. Therefore, when you apply to XYZ college, you get preferential consideration because you have a family member who graduated from that same school. Now, I know that early decision is also part of that bill as well. So can you talk to us about what the difference is between early decision and then legacy preference? Yeah, so early decision is another it's another uh, college admissions practice that um, basically uh, allows a college applicant to apply early. You know, most times you apply to school by January. You apply to one school by November, and you get a response on that application by the very beginning of January. So you can get in early uh, to the school of your dreams, if you will. Um, it is a binding decision so that once you are admitted, uh, early decision. You have a you're making a commitment to attend that school, and you do so before you know what that school is willing to offer you in terms of a financial aid package, or really what you are eligible for uh, in terms of a financial aid package. Related to early decision is another similar practice called early action, which is the same exact thing except it's not binding. So you can still apply to a school early you know, for peace of mind, because you want to put all your chips on on your dream school, whatever it might be, but you don't have to commit to going to that school until you know what all of your other options are, and especially until you know what your your costs are going to be. 
Yeah. So through the binding early decision, you don't know what your financial package is. So you could be getting nothing or you could be getting what you need to be able to attend the school. So what communities are you seeing in New York that legacy preference and early decision is really hurting or binding early decision is really hurting the most? So, you know, this really, both of these practices tend to really favor uh, students who come from privileged backgrounds, which traditionally have been wealthier white students. Uh, you know, you think about if your family, you know, went to a, a, a an elite school or an exclusive school 30 or you know 40 years ago, uh, the, the, the educational landscape was different back then, or even earlier than that, um, when you look at some of the Ivy League schools. So a lot of these schools historically had exclusionary admissions policies that have now been perpetuated in the form of legacy. Uh, and then when you look at uh, early decision, um, you know, this again tends to favor students who come from privileged backgrounds, students who have access to um, to financial means because they can make decisions about where to go to school without having to worry about how they're going to pay for it. Uh, and also students who come from, you know, strong college counseling backgrounds, you know, so maybe you're at a private high school and they have really robust college counseling as opposed to a large public high school with 5,000 kids. Um, and if you look at the data where where students who apply early decision come from, they're twice as likely um, to be from wealthier zip codes than not. And so that just speaks wow. to, I think, the um, just the scale and the scope of the inequities that, that these practices perpetuate. In New York, we don't have um, uh, perfect data, but we know that uh, more than 70 colleges in New York uh, you know, employ some form of a legacy preference, including a third of our public universities. Um, and similarly with, uh, with early decision, we know that many schools um, offer early decisions. I think the last count we saw was somewhere around 45 or 50 schools offer early decisions. And they, and they set aside a significant number of seats in their incoming class for both legacy and early decision admits. And so uh, it becomes harder and harder for folks who don't come, for students who don't come from those backgrounds to be able to qualify or compete for those seats. Yeah, especially when 70 of your universities employ those two admissions practices. And if you're looking at universities that have a lower acceptance rate to begin with, like to your point, it does make it even harder, especially looking at, as you mentioned, with the um, universities having exclusionary practices. I mean, there are a lot of universities that were not even co-ed until the 70s. How do you make the argument that, you know, when you outline this concept of giving preference to students, um, you know, giving certain students a leg up whose parents went to a legacy school, to some people, to some students, it doesn't seem like it's so much of a bad thing. So can you kind of talk to us about how you make that argument and how you speak to the people that maybe don't see this as such a bad practice? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, this is a form of affirmative action when you really think about it. Um, and, you know, I know that affirmative action, um, you know, for some folks, create some really negative uh, reactions or connotations, this idea that we should have college campuses reflect the full diversity of communities and of cities and of states and of, of just our population, uh, and that we should be able to create college campuses that reflect the fullness of that diversity. Um, you know, from, uh, legacy admissions and early decision are just a form of, a, of affirmative action for privileged students when it really comes down to it. And that's not fair. 
And, you know, we all are, we all want to believe in this American dream notion that if you work hard enough, you can make it, you can succeed. Um, but that's not quite possible when you give some students a leg up um, just because of who they are or who their parents were or what type of financial background they come from. Uh, and it really, it really is such an anti uh, meritocracy uh, to think that just because your parents went to a school that you should automatically get preference for that same school. Um, I think it strikes at the heart of people's notions of what's fair and not fair. Yeah, I think so too, especially since New York has one of the most segregated school districts um, in the nation. And then while New York itself is a very diverse city, you know, especially the Brooklyn neighborhood that you represent. So how does the legacy bill kind of play into expanding the inequities that are already present in New York's historically disenfranchised communities? Yeah, yeah, it's really a great question. Uh, you know, look, in New York City, uh, only 27 percent of uh, of black people in New York City have a bachelor's degree. And it's only 20 percent wow. of Hispanic um, residents have a bachelor's degree compared to 45% Asian families, Asian individuals, or 64% white residents. Uh, so you see right there, the starting point of the discrepancies that exist in terms of college access and college attainment. Um, and then when you layer on top of that, this notion that you know some students who have access to money or who have access to status or who have access to privilege are gonna be more likely to go to a college and get into a college and be able to pursue higher education. When you layer that on top of the statistics I just mentioned, you can see automatically how it kind of just self-perpetuates this notion of structural inequities in terms of who has access to education and who doesn't, who gets access to the best schools, who doesn't, who gets access to the best opportunities and who doesn't. Um, and so that's why I think that legacy admissions and binding early decision practices are just such a um, a, a pernicious form of um, of exclusionary admissions policies that really have no place uh, in the college Ill landscape of the 21st century. When you think about legacy preference, as you mentioned, you really think about Ivy League universities or private institutions. And you mentioned that there are quite a number of public institutions in New York that employ this practice as well. So how do you reframe the narrative and kind of educate your constituents about, you know, it is something they need to care about because it affects a number of public institutions alongside the private and Ivy League? Yeah, I, mean, I think once people understand that it exists at both the public and private realm, people really, you know, turn, you know, um, open their eyes and they, they realize just how pervasive this practice actually is and, and how big of a problem it actually is as well. Um, and so, you know, the more that we talk about it with people, the more that it strikes at their notions of what's fair and right and what is or is not equitable. Um, you know, and then when you look at where where students are coming from in their admissions practice or their, while they're applying, I should say, uh, you know, students who attend private high schools are three times more likely than students who go to public school to even you know apply, let's say, early decision in the first place. So um, you know, you look at the numbers of students in different types of schools, and you look at who is who is who's using these practices, who's applying these ways, and then you see just how widespread this problem actually is. And in a place like New York, where so many of our students are first in their family 
to go to college. There are you know, one in five students in New York uh, come from an immigrant background. Um, you know, you're automatically just shutting out whole segments of the population. When you're able to talk to people about that, they really start to realize just how the, how the raw numbers themselves make this so unfair. Especially when we've seen New York recently take in more migrant children to the public ed system. You know, that's there's so many more thousands of children that you're leaving out of that equation when you just employ legacy preference. Um, so, you know, there are, are critics of the legacy preference bill that cite the argument that race conscious admissions policies kind of offset legacy preference and early decision admissions and the negative effects that those would have on those communities. So how do you respond to this point? And how does this pending Supreme Court decision about affirmative action kind of impact this bill? Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, when you look at when you peel the the curtain uh, back and you look at what's really happening in college admissions, um, a lot more of these seats are being reserved for legacy preference and early decision admits than they are for, let's say, affirmative action admits. Um, so yeah. already off the bat, uh, it's almost like in some cases, the affirmative action programs at schools, the diversity programs in schools are really just uh, window dressing for uh, allowing much more exclusionary practices to go unnoticed under the radar. Um, and, you know, so that in of itself is a problem. And that's, I think, the most powerful response back to folks who say that you you need legacy to make it fair. And it's really not fair at all. So that's the argument that we're trying to make to folks right now is that this is incredibly important, especially because the Supreme Court is going to end any consideration of race conscious admissions, um, even in, even non-dispositive, which is where we are right now. But the law does not allow you to use race as a dispositive factor. When it comes to admissions, it's it's it is one of many factors that can be considered in a broad array of criteria. The court's going to take that away. Then we should be prepared to say, well, then we're going to take away any preference that exists that allows longstanding exclusionary practices to be perpetuated. When you talk so passionately about legacy preference, I'm curious why it's an issue that affects you personally so much so that you would sponsor this type of bill. Um, you know, that's actually a really great question. Um, and uh, I think the most honest answer to that is it strikes at my notion and, and my sense of what's fair or not fair. Um, you know, I attended the City University of New York at Hunter College, uh, as did my parents where they met. Um, and, you know, so I was a public school student uh, throughout my college career. And, you know, even though I... Um, I, I'm blessed to have come from a family that was able to provide for me where my parents did attain college degree and they did attain, you know, uh, advanced uh, degrees. And there was never a moment in my life where I was in need or had wants. Um, you know, that's that's privilege that I recognize that I also come from. Um, but I was still raised with this idea of like what is fair and what is right and what is proper. And, you know, I would not want uh, I would not have wanted to go to college just because my parents went um, to a school and they got me into that school. Nor would I want that for my own, for my son or any you know, or my children. Um, that just does not seem to me to be fair or right. Uh, you work hard, you study hard, you make the best of every opportunity that's given to you, but you have to be given the opportunities in the first place. Um, and, you know, when you look at, um, you know, how many, how many members of the New York state legislature, for example, went to a public college, right? They graduated the CUNY system. They graduated the SUNY system. They are now decision makers for the entire state. They didn't need a fancy private uh, education um, or any 
special privileges to be granted to them in order to rise to a level of public leadership or public service. They were able to do it because they were given opportunities at their institutions. That should apply to everyone. Um, and I think that that really is why I feel so passionately about uh, taking down the barriers that leave some students behind, in, in some cases, very much intentionally. And, you know, touching on that and touching on some of the other higher education work that you're doing personally, I know that you recently signed um, the ERN Higher Education Coalition letter that was sent to Secretary of Education uh, Miguel Cardona and then the Undersecretary James Kubal calling for increased transparency in admissions for higher ed institutions. Can you talk to us about why we need more transparency in admissions and what data you feel like we aren't collecting when we call for increased data transparency and how that makes higher ed more equitable? Absolutely. You know, I, I you know, this kind of gets to what we've been talking about um, so far is like this, this lack of clarity as to who benefits and who doesn't, right? And you hear defenders of the legacy system say, oh no, we have very diverse campuses. Oh no, we do all the things that we're supposed to do. We make sure that we we admit X number of students from black families or Latino families or you know, uh, you know, X number of students from this background or that background. And, you know, in many ways, we have no idea how true that is or what that is in the grand, you know, in the bigger picture. Uh, it could be window dressing. It could be real. It could be legitimate. We have no idea. College admissions is like a black box, right? You could have the grades, you could have the test scores, but maybe not the well-rounded application. You know, maybe you didn't have the ability to be on five different clubs and play four different sports and learn 18 different languages, you know, all while you are, uh, you know, in high school because you were working to help support your family like that. You know, so really the, the the notion that we should have more transparency into who is applying to schools, what their backgrounds are, uh, and then who's getting accepted to schools and what schools they're getting accepted to allows us to paint a better picture to understand exactly how this, you know, this, um, you know, black box of admissions is really working. Uh, it's almost like the sorting hat, you know, from Harry Potter, right? Like you have no idea how or why things work sometimes. It just does, right? You just go with it. You know, we we want to have a better understanding as to who is and who is not benefiting and who is being shut out of access. And so we think that as we continue our work around reforming the college admissions process, talking more about legacy, talking more about early decision, uh, having more data to back these numbers up um, and to really you know, have accurate, fully accurate data. Like, you know, I, at the start of our conversation, I cited you know, 70 something schools with legacy preferences. That's the best, that number is to the best of our ability to, to kind of piece together. There is no central database. There is no like online source. We, you know, we have to piece that together school by school and, and through a collection of, of different surveys. It should be in one place. It should be public. It should be transparent for everyone. And, you know, some will tell you, yes, we we have five seats. Some will tell you, you know, they won't tell you how many they have open, right? Or some will tell you that they give consideration. It is so unclear um, and uh, opaque that we just have no real answers. Yeah. And you don't want to assume the worst with universities, but I know recently there was a scandal with AM University in Texas misrepresenting the number of diverse students that they had at their university. And then there was a data issue even in New York with Columbia University. Exactly. You know, and this was all, and, and you know, this all gets to the, you know, this obsession with numbers and trying to, you know, game the system somehow. Cause the system, again, is not set up just to be objective for everyone. It's not set up to be able to say, you know, here's what the here's what the facts are. Here's what the data shows. 
here's if you want to go to this school or that school, what it what it'll take and what it'll be like. It is so complicated and unnecessarily so. Um, but people stand to benefit from it. This this myth of rankings and this aura around rankings that are made up based on numbers that we have no idea how they come together. It all is in an effort to to sell new to sell magazines, sell access, sell prestige. I mean, look at the testing scandal from even a couple of years ago, right? Uh, these celebrities went through these hoops and hurdles just to have, you know, to cheat on admissions tests because it was so important to have access to that prestige. But for what? Um, you know, we can start breaking down those barriers um, and, and really making the college landscape, um, you know, accessible for everyone. And you can do just as well whether you go to Hunter College or Harvard College, right? Um, and, and and that should really be the foundation that we start all of our our entire understanding of pursuing a college education. Absolutely. And to the step of breaking down these barriers, I know, you know, legacy preference and early decision are just pieces of the puzzle to making college more fair and more equitable. So what do you envision as future steps that New York public and private universities can take to make them more accessible and more like their public and private high schools and secondary schools. Yeah, so I, I, you know, right off the bat, we we really need to end legacy admissions in New York. We need to uh, disallow the use of early decision. Keep early action. I think early action actually is helpful to students. It doesn't bind them to any commitments, um, but gives them options uh, and lets them see what they might qualify for. Early action is fine. Um, and then we should do some other things. I, you know, I, I, the last couple of years, I've been trying to pass a law that requires all students graduating high school to complete a FAFSA form. So they, they even know what financial aid they can be eligible for. Again, to repeat an earlier point, if you go to a private school um, or you have access to individualized college counseling, you're going to know to fill out that FAFSA. If you're the first in your family to go to school, if you're an immigrant family and you're the first in your family that grew up in this country and I was applying to college and you don't have access to a guidance counselor in high school that can give you more than 10 minutes of time, uh, like you're not going to know to fill out the FAFSA. Um, you know, so if, if every student had to fill out the FAFSA form, um, then every student would know exactly what their financial aid picture could be. They would know if they're leaving money on the table. They would know what they could qualify for, what they'd be eligible for. And then they can figure out how to make their financial decisions in, in pursuit of their uh, of their college ambitions. Um, so the, you know, I think that's an additional step that we can be looking at and we should be taking, uh, again, to level the playing field for everyone um, so that everyone has equal access and equal opportunity. And we spend a lot of time talking about your higher ed priorities. I'm curious what your K-12 priorities are. I know that dual enrollment is something that you've been working to increase. And then AP for All is a big in New York right now. Yeah, you know, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, AP Prawl would be a great boon for students. Again, if you look at the, the disbursement of AP classes, say in New York City, uh, it really, the overlay between students who have access to those classes and who don't, it's a, a stark um, similarity to students who come from poor schools, poor neighborhoods, uh, and then there's a racial overlay on top of that. So we think that every student should have access, the opportunity to have access to um, uh, accelerated learning. Uh, I think every school should have a guidance counselor. That should not be a, a controversial statement, um, you know, in the year 2023. Every school should have, uh, you know, every student should have access to mental health counselors, you know, on their school campuses, um, you know, which we, not everyone has right now. 
there should be 3K and pre-K in every single school district for every single child, right? Um, we know the benefits of early childhood education and how that sets you up for success in elementary, middle school, high school, and beyond. It starts, you know, it, there's a reason why we call it from, you know, from cradle because it starts in the cradle. It starts at those young ages. So there's a lot more we can be doing to educate the whole person um, to, and, and to give people a strong foundation and set them up for success, both academically, but also also emotionally, psychologically, um, and then uh, empower them to pursue whatever it is they want to pursue. Like I said earlier, it, you know, it might not be a four-year degree. It might not be a law degree or a PhD. It might not be a doctor, and that's entirely okay. But the system should be able to set up to work for every student. And right now, it's just not. No, it's not. And back to you know your original conversation point about legacy preference, um, what are the kind of next steps that this bill is taking? So we are trying to build up some support amongst colleagues. I think the legacy bill in the Senate right now has uh, six or seven co-sponsors. Um, uh, you know, in in my chamber, I'm working. Uh, you know, constantly to talk to my colleagues. I've gotten some really positive feedback from people, even those who you know they might have questions about the bill, but intuitively agree that the notion that you know you should get preferential treatment because of who your parents were or where they went to school is wrong. And so we we have I think a deeper reservoir of support than maybe the number of co-sponsors, and that works going to continue. Uh, it's my hope that after we wrap up the state budget this year, which is already. Uh, you know, 13, 14 days late, we can really pivot to talk about the other priorities um, that we have before the end of the legislative session. And and my pitch to my colleagues is, we know what the Supreme Court's going to do. It's only a matter of weeks before they announce this. So why not get out ahead? Why not start preparing now for that eventuality so that when the Supreme Court takes the steps that we know they're going to take, New York is ready to lead and respond and say, okay, if, you know, we are going to make we're going to open up this process for everyone. Um, that's where I think we should be. Thank you so much, uh, Senator Gennadis, for giving us some of your time today and for talking to us so deeply and in detail about this bill. I think that, you know, giving this education to people and helping a lot of, uh, especially New York's constituents, understand how this affects truly every community in New York um, is very important. And we appreciate you giving your time to help explain that to our listeners. No, thank you very much for having me. I, um, I, I hope folks are convinced and I hope folks will, uh, will be supportive. As we've heard, ending legacy preference is an education reform battle that impacts many on a personal level alongside the fight to make higher ed equitable for all students. Now we're going to hear from student activist Jaylen Adams from the Youth Coalition Our Turn a movement activating young people of color to dismantle oppressive systems that limit access to quality education. Thank you for giving us some of your time. I know being a student, you must be pretty jam-packed with your schedule. <laughs> no problem at all. I always make time for this. So I was wondering if you would talk to us just a little bit about who you are and how you got involved with education advocacy. Yeah, so my name is Jalen Adams. I'm a first year student at Columbia University studying political science and creative writing. Um, but I originally come a lot further south. Um, I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and in doing that, I, from a very young age, became very involved in our school district student council, Charlotte Mecklenburg Youth Council. Um, and I kind of adopted the responsibility of representing um, the, the entirety of the schools <laughs> in our entire district. And so 
um, from that, I learned from a very young age, the responsibility that comes with um, wanting to make change and then actually ha having that happen. Um, and so from there, I got involved with Our Turn, which is a education reform nonprofit. And I got very heavily involved with one of their local campaigns, One State, One Rate, um, which seeks to guarantee in-state tuition for undocumented students. We recently just got two bills um, introduced to the Senate. So I'm looking forward to seeing what that turns out to be. That's amazing. And you know, you mentioned that you have two bills going to the Senate. What pieces of legislation are you working on now or that you have worked on that you're really passionate about? It would definitely be these two. Um, one is Democrat introduced and the other is Republican introduced. And they all have their um, own unique features. At, at its core, it really is just amending the definition of a resident. So undocumented students under the condition that they have paid taxes and are, of course, in North Carolina resident can access the same tuition as uh, a student like me who had the opportunity to go to Chapel Hill at a lower cost. That's incredible. And that's been introduced to the Senate in North Carolina? Yes. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, you know, you going from the admissions um, for undocumented to legacy preference, you kind of are operating in this higher ed admissions arena. How did you get involved with the legacy admissions debate? And as someone attending a university for which your children could receive a legacy preference benefit, what keeps you in the fight to do away with this higher education admissions practice? Yeah, I feel like there's always a natural progression in advocacy where you kind of um, are familiar with the spaces you're in. And then as you go into new ones, um, you'll learn about that and you'll learn about the issues that come with it. I had the very lucky opportunity to be involved with multiple college readiness programs, um, one of them being LIDA, another being Thrive Scholars. Each gave me access to really just the incredible opportunity to work with admissions counselors. If I think to the students who didn't have that opportunity, I um, could see how the, the process as a whole is just kind of ridiculous for lack of a better word. It's um, you have to do fees to apply, um, you have to put in money just to say that you're going to the school. Um, there's such a such a specific recipe when it comes to college application essays. And I just know my mother, who never had the chance to go to college, um, there's no way she would have known what to do if not for her own tedious research. And then, of course, the help of my counselors for my various programs. So um, I'm lucky to have her. But at the same time, she was working two jobs from from dusk to dawn sometimes in between and she had to carve out time to do the research and so I know for other people like um of course my my friends whose families don't speak English that must be such a grueling process so now um, I'm lucky to say that I do attend Columbia University on a full ride but I feel like a lot of people when you've carved out the space um, and you've made it your, your own you want to do what you can to make sure it'll be for your children as well but um kind of the consensus that we all came to is okay maybe we're thinking about our children but who is thinking about our parents the ones who, who who slaved and worked to make sure that um they were knowledgeable enough to help us in the college application process who are continuing to work to send us money or get us a plane ticket to come back who make our beds and cook our meals when we do come home over break so maybe instead of thinking about the ones who come after we have to think about the ones who came before and what they've done for us and of course um we do have to also think about the the nature of what legacy means i feel like legacy is such a positive word but at the end of the day it really is just just like blood rights and, and nepotism and um 
we live in a democracy, not autocracy. So in any decision, it should be married, especially when you're opening them to a, a world like this, a world with so much opportunity and academics. And really, when you think about it, <laughs> you want the kid who, who worked really hard and got the 4.0 going to med school, or do you want the parent who, the kid whose parent was a doctor? Um, I want the kid who did the best. Absolutely. And it's a bold stance to kind of remove yourself from the situation and say, yes, my kids could benefit from this, but you're thinking about your parents and the work that they put into it and the work of the parents of every other student around you. And that's kind of a hard decision, I think, to make to recognize that you're fighting against something that you personally could benefit from down the line. In your personal opinion, why is legacy preference as an admissions practice? unequitable for a vast majority of students? For one, it's it's unrealistic. Um, I think I think people see kind of the Ivy League and admissions to it as this like first first ticket, first class ticket into like a beautiful vacation. They see it as a winning lotto ticket. Um, but at the end of the day, when you look at who's who historically has been allowed to go to these colleges, it's always um saturated in either racism or misogyny. Um Columbia itself still has Barnard College, which is a living relic of, of the segregation between women and men. It's our women's only college, um, of course, that we are, have been credited with um, allowing women to attend early, but that's only because we sent them to a completely different institution. So um, when you think about that, how can someone be a Columbia alumni or if they were never allowed to go to the college? And um, maybe the women got the chance, but um, African-Americans, people of color, they got the chance a lot later. And so you can't be legacy if your your great-grandmother couldn't read or your great-grandmother was attending um, a colored-only school who didn't have access to up-to-date textbooks. So completely unfair to the people who who never had the opportunity. And I really feel like it's just concentrating wealth um, in a way that's very dangerous to the progression of not only our economy, but also our democracy. And do you have thoughts on the pending upcoming Supreme Court decision that could do away with race conscious admissions practices. And if that, in your personal opinion, means that we should be focusing on legacy preference more, or if we should be focusing our attentions elsewhere. I think the, the upcoming decisions in the Supreme Court will really show whether or not our judges are capable of critical understanding and critical thought. Um, it is completely different to consider race and legacy in an admissions process. Race is something inextricable from who you are. Um, it's a it's another layer of your identity that cannot be peeled back and removed. It's completely inextricable from who I am. It affects the way I talk. It affects the way I carry myself. It affects how I do my hair. It affects what skincare I use. It affects literally every single part of me. Um, and so it also affects my history. I still hear stories from my grandmother of what it was like to grow up in the deep South and how she had to hide under the floorboards because she didn't know who was coming down the road. And of course, how her great grandmother was able to um, pick them up and bring them to New York, which um, is definitely more progressive than the South. But at the end of the day, they still had the same um, air white supremacy that plagued all of America at the time. So um, I feel like when you remove that history, you're removing kind of the um, the factors that would cause um, maybe a certain student to not have access to other things. Um, unfortunately, I think the only thing that legacy gives you um, is knowing that the person before them had a had a boost. Um, whereas the person um, with this long history of white supremacy and racism, they didn't, and they're still in the bidding. So I think it's important to remember that. 
Absolutely. And it's such a great point that legacy and race conscious admissions don't have any sort of similar weight because yes, legacy is something that you get and it's something that you can have and take off and it's something that you can have for one generation and not for another. And race is not something that you can ever ignore. It should always be part of every applicant's history. And I want to ask you too, I know that binding early decision is a component of legacy preference in this bill that's being uh, sponsored by Senator Grunardis. What are your thoughts on binding early decision? And does that hold a similar weight to you as legacy preference? Binding early decision to me is, I never even considered it. I hated the idea of it. I don't like the idea of being contractually obligated to attend a university. Um, I feel like um for lack of a better word, it feels like indentured servitude, um, especially when you when you look at kind of my peers. Um, um, I think binding gives too much sway on the institution um, over the student. I think it's um, there's no room for negotiation. They completely decide the, the point of the contract without you ever even reading it first. You're just beholden to it. Um, and I think um, for, for students of color, for um, disadvantaged groups they always look at early binding action because of the higher acceptance rate but you're also not looking at the price tag sometimes we can't afford that so it's important to just differentiate and those details are so important too because i think that traditionally our conceptual understanding of binding early decision is you know it you know binds you to go to that university and the negative impacts being you have no control over what sort of financial aid package you're able to get from that university but as you've just outlined there are so many other factors that can impact you post attending a university through a binding decision that i think a lot of people either don't know about or don't think about when we think about binding early decision so when you're outlining these for us, can you kind of go into some detail about either things that you've seen personally or that you've gone through through your advocacy work through our turn about why early binding early decision is something that we need to be thinking more about and that it can be harmful in a similar way that legacy preference can be? For one, sometimes binding isn't binding, depending whether or not if you have the money. Um, One of my favorite quotes of all time is that some some laws aren't illegal if you're rich because you can pay the fees. And um, unfortunately, I do know some people here who did agree for early binding for other colleges, but of course they have the money and the time and the resources to um, negotiate the lawyer after the conclusion. And they ended up going here instead of a different school. And so um, already I feel that that is extremely um, immoral just because one, not every student has that chance. And two, you took advantage of a higher acceptance rate, knowing you didn't have the the negative consequences of potentially being um mandated to pay something that you couldn't. So that to me is horrible. And then too, um, I did mention the money aspect of it. One of my friends, she does have a campus job, but the hours are completely unreasonable. And um, we have something on campus that the hours last till about three a.m. Um, and I I just can't imagine having to do all of the classwork and then take the six to eight class and then um, do your homework and do all of our readings and then also have to balance a job as well as that. Um, Imagine if you had an 8 a.m. class and you got off of work at 3 a.m. It's just completely unreasonable. Um, So there's, there's some aspects of it, but I think um, the, the negative aspects are always felt more harshly by the people who can't afford them. And that always tends to be a person of color, a marginalized group, um, first generation low income. 
Absolutely. And, you know, as someone with your background and your history, I'm curious, what does going to college mean to you and what importance do you place on higher education? I've placed such high importance since I was seven. My mother didn't go. And so because of that, she ended up working two jobs and, and driving me every morning at 6 a.m. across um, the appropriate lines just so I can go to a better school because she felt that that was important for me. And I always, always complained about the drive. And so she sat me down one day and said, education will always give you options. And if the options are horrible and you don't want to take them, you won't have to because you have the education to choose something different for yourself. Um, And that stuck with me ever since. I always knew I was going to go to college. I always knew I was going to aim for something high for myself. I mean, because of that, um, I look at my own experience. I look at all of the opportunities for my future and it's always so exciting. Um, And then of course I look at my friends who didn't because maybe they couldn't afford it or maybe um, they didn't have that instilled in them when they were younger and it seems always more stressful. So I going to college means continuing a legacy for me, a legacy of my own. And then of course it also means I will have the options to to choose something better for myself every time I'm so in in love with the idea of um of knowing things and having something of your own and I hope to bring that back to my mother one day. And that's so powerful too that you do it for both yourself and for your parents, you know, because they gave you so much and you want to prove to them that, you know, you, it wasn't unjust that they did it and you're going to take it and you're going to see the weight of what they put into the lives that they led to lead something better for you. And that's amazing. And I'm curious, what other pieces of advocacy are you working on uh, through our turn or something that you're passionate about in your individual scale that would help make higher ed more equitable and more fair for every student? Yeah, so right now I'm currently working with our turn. We're working on putting together a focus group of students so we can look through the AP African-American curriculum that College Board has come out with, um, unfortunately, in Florida. Um, and its ever-persisting frustration has decided to strike down some of the key points. And so I want to make it my own personal mission to look through the points they struck down, why they would do that, and what could possibly be done about it. Um, and then, of course, I have always been so, so invested in our one state, one rate campaign. As I mentioned, the bills have been introduced, but now it's a matter of getting them passed so that undocumented students don't have to worry about the price tag of a school that's literally down the block for them. So that's huge for me. But um, now I guess my own personal mission is passing my classes. Um, um, I got here, but I need to make sure I can stay here. And of course, um, options don't come from just going to college, but doing well in college as well. So I want to make sure that I'm doing my very best. So I have um, not just a diploma, but a good report card to bring back as well. And what are the next steps on the one state, one rate bill? And are there any ways that our listeners can help to bring more awareness to it? Yeah, I would say the next steps are definitely public pressure. Um, Getting a bill introduced is always huge. But um, if our our, um, Congress people aren't you know, beholden to the voices of their constituents, if they aren't representing constituents, it's just um, they don't, they're not going to do it naturally. So I think the best step is always public pressure. Email if you can, text if you can, um, visit our turns website at itsourturn.org. Um, let us know you want to be involved and we can get you on a call and make sure that your voice is being heard as well as anyone else's voice. 
Thank you so much for that information and for giving us some of your time today. As a busy student, I know that, you know, a free 10 minutes is hard to come by. And I want to wish you so much good luck on the remainder of your first year.